Hello, you're listening to Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast, presented by Brandon Elliott. This show will be going over all aspects of real estate investing and is intended to educate, motivate, and prepare you to take action on your first or next real estate investment. For more information, please visit BrandonElliottInvestments.com. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Welcome back, everyone, to Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast. I am your host, Mr. Brandon Elliott, and today we have an awesome opportunity to be able to talk about property management, talk about rentals, and how to really structure and systemize your management skills that you can implement today in your own business for being a landlord. You know, at the end of the day, nobody's really going to care about your investment properties like yourself. I've tried hiring on dozens of people in the past probably not a dozen, you know, maybe half a dozen or so. And it's been a nightmare left and right. So I've always ended up systemizing it myself and just put the right people in the right spot at the right time, thankfully. But this gentleman is going to be diving into how he's managing over 120 units at this point in time. And he's got 94 units across the board on his own with, you know, syndication and so forth. But but yeah, I'm, I'm super excited to have Dave on today. So David, what's going on, man? How you doing? Great. How are you doing, Brandon? Good, man. Good. I appreciate you for jumping on. For anybody out there that doesn't know exactly who you are, do you mind just diving into who you are, where you're from, and, and what you're up to? Absolutely. I uh, grew up in the great state of Maine, went out to Minnesota for college, and then down to South America for four years, where I met my then girlfriend, now wife. We started a chain of camping stores together. Didn't really know what we were doing. So when we came back to the US, I went to business school, got an MBA, kept working with Latin America. I went to work for a nonprofit that helped kids in Guatemala that lived in the garbage dump go to school, but state investing pretty seriously at that time, just because my W-2 wage was not going to let me you know, retire, pay for college, you know, all those different things you might want to do. And decided that you know, real estate can allow me to have a positive impact on my local community you know, by being a good landlord, we landlords don't have the best reputation in the world, but uh, we can chip away at that, you know, one person, one property at a time. And so got really excited, started working with partners and other investors and fast forward to today. So yeah, co-owned 94 units, some of which are larger commercial, you know, buildings and, you know, doing syndications with groups of investors pooling their money to buy larger properties. Love it. So talk about the syndications for a second. This is something that you just started working on the last couple of years, right? Your first property that you jumped into is more on the passive side. That was 2011. Then in 2013, you picked up your own property, I believe. Exactly. After yep. that, years later, you started getting really you know, savvy with it and started picking up more of the syndication route and going for bigger projects. You know, So what does that look like for you? Yep. Yeah, that's a great question. It was kind of a natural progression where I started out in real estate as a passive investor. I just gave my money to someone I knew and trusted. They did great things with it. We got a great return. We owned a building for seven years, sold it for a great you know, profit. And that was a good learning experience. And I think anyone that's not ready to be their own, you know, active investor, landlord, all those kind of things, you know, starting passive is okay. You know, your 401k, your IRA, those are all passive investments. They're just not in real estate. And even REITs, uh, you know, it's more of an equity than it is a real estate asset directly. So that's, you know, how I got started. But, you know, I think I started small. You know, some people like the Grant Cardones will tell you buy a 40 unit, at least, you know, in your first deal. 
I don't think unless you have a lot of safety net and cushion and reserves that that's a great idea. I think it is good to start small, you know, so I started with just a plain vanilla single family 1200 square foot house, you know, here in Maine, did another one after that. But pretty soon, you know, real estate investors, you got this choice to make, am I going to keep doing single family houses and kind of build my path to freedom through those? And that can be great because you develop a real niche, you get, you know, the market, they're easy, they're a commodity, you can buy and sell them, you know, in a very liquid manner. Or am I going to go into more of the apartment space or get a little more complex where you can get economies of scale that you simply cannot with single families, but you also are moving up a food chain, so to speak. And there's some different, you know, learning team building kind of elements that you need to tackle to do that. I love it. So what are the numbers on the last couple of projects that you've raised money for, for the syndications? Yeah. So our most recent one, it was a $3.3 million acquisition. We raised 1.2 million. You can do it with less. You know, that's about raising almost 35%, you know, equity. But I was feeling like with COVID, this being, you know, an, a mixed use building with office and retail and restaurant that, you know, no amount of reserves is too much in 2020. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Not the daytime um, we're in. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You know, belt and suspenders time. So, you know, we raised a little extra on that deal, which, you know, if we keep it for 10 years, that extra, yeah, that would lower returns a little bit. But, you know, number one, it looks like it's going to be really good returns no matter what. And number two, you know, if, if in a year or two, we're feeling really good about everything we've got and we can always return money to investors and, and we probably will. Okay. Awesome. All right. So when it comes down to your projects currently, you know, what kind of inspired you to start getting the property management side of things? Because that's what you're mainly focusing on right now, besides raising all these money for these bigger projects, right? Yeah, I think management is so critical. Good management can turn a bad deal into a good one. Bad management can turn a good deal into a bad one. Uh, you really need to have your eyes on the ball. And I started out just managing myself, you know, the first maybe 10 units. And pretty quickly after that, I had a full-time day job. I had a new infant. I was not going to be able to be the in-person landlord for everyone, for everything. So when I started buying eight and nine and 10 unit buildings, I kept the current management in place, which was an individual person who was a real estate agent and broker who was doing this in the spare time. And it turned out that, uh, you know, my little dinky management fees were never going to compete with the five or $10,000 one time. I'm, you know, listing and sale fees of a brokerage. And so there was a time constraint and I'm an A student. I wanted to get A grades on management and I was getting, you know, C's and D's and things were just going slowly. So I decided to change to a professional company or so I thought, sure. and I had already gotten all the rents onto cozy.com. So an electronic, you know, rent collection payment system. And they were very old school. You know, they had a check, you know, Dropbox outside their office where tenants would physically go and deliver their, you know, rent checks. So they would go and pick up cash from tenants that didn't write checks. I mean, it was really antiquated and they couldn't do bookkeeping. And so it just, it was a huge headache. And again, I felt like things drop, balls were getting dropped and I wasn't in control. They said, oh, sorry, it's still vacant this week. And it's been three or four weeks of a vacancy, you know, there's nothing you can do as a landlord. You can't, you yeah. can only, you know, uh, hit that horse so hard and they, they're just going to keep ignoring you because, you know, you're not their top priority perhaps. So sure. at that point, I kind of knew I had to start my own management company. So when it comes down to mistakes, like what kind of mistakes have you personally experienced in the beginning or that you've seen other, you know, property managers that that's what inspired you to help, you know, actually 
jump on it yourself. It's not sexy. It's super basic. But in a lot of times, like in sports, if you just master the basics, you can become a professional level athlete. You know, and oh, the same is true in property management. You just got to do the credit checks and the background yeah. checks and you can't get lax and loose with those, you know? Sure. And so every time I buy a building, I find a drug dealer in it. And it's yeah. like, man, this is not the first time. Like they've done this, you know, they have a record a mile long. Like yeah. all you have to do is check. And a lot of times like someone might screen the girlfriend, but not the boyfriend. And because the girlfriend's been doing all the communication or, you know, whatever, but you just have to be thorough. You have to stick to your rules, your principles. You got to go by the fair housing laws and make sure that, you know, you're treating everyone equally, but that you're treating everyone with a pretty scrutinizing eye and a fine tooth comb to make sure that you're not letting problem tenants slip through the cracks. Yeah, that's so good. I remember like when I first, about scaling and really trying to turn this into a real business, instead of constantly working in the business all the time, you wanna you want to make sure that you're working on it so that you can you know systemize the whole, just moving parts, moving forward. I personally had people in my, in my circle that I started relying on to do some of the work and property management companies. And what I realized was that I was still taking over a lot of, maybe it's a control thing. I don't know what it is, but I just, I didn't see them stepping up to the plate how they should have. And I was still dishing out a ridiculous little fortune every month to them. So what I noticed is it was just, it made more sense for me to really finish the systemizing moving pieces and completely do it all in-house. When it comes down to showing properties and so forth, what do you do on that aspect? Yeah, and and we've adapted a lot with COVID, you know, so now it's a completely remote, you know, no contact system where we'll put a digital lockbox from a company called Rently, which is a great one to check out on the unit. People can, you know, sort of do a mini application through Rently to schedule their own showing. They get texted, you know, the code to get in once they, you know, scan their ID, you know, into the website and it confirms who they are. It does a credit check on them just to get them in the unit. And it's super simple. It's all automated. They get themselves in. You don't have to coordinate schedules, drive anywhere, et cetera. They do their own showing, you know, locks when they leave and you're all set. So we've used those with a lot of success, you know, to do showings. That's the way to go. I think that's one of the big time killers of property management is just driving everywhere, you know, sucking up time to show a unit that really there's not that much that you need to tell people about the one bedroom apartment, you know, and and whatever questions they have, like you can do a Facebook live, you can do, you know, a zoom call or, or answer those kind of questions while they're in the unit if you want to, or just a regular phone call. while they're in the unit and answer any questions without you being there face-to-face. I love that. So what we've done in the past and what we're currently doing is anybody that is interested in the property, we have a virtual tour online, dozens of pictures, like 25 to 30 plus. And then if they like it, they, you know, I encourage them to drive past the neighborhood, drive past the property, but then they have to actually do an application. So anybody 18 or older in the house has to do an application, get pre-approved. And and some people throw up like red flags saying, you know, I don't want to pay for something that I can't see first. And I always just say to them simply, you know, well, I don't want to waste your time or mine if you're not, you know, actually truly approved and qualify for the property. So that has always helped us out well. They get pre-approved once they're good to go. Then we show them any of our properties available and I pay my contractor to yep. actually do the, the walk around and show people. 
So I think that's a great topic, what you're talking about. You know, they actually get access with Rently and that's just a link that they would get and it unlocks for itself. It's not an actual code, right? Right. Yeah. Rently does all the communication back and forth with the, you know, potential applicant. They have their own tech support. They text and email the people. They do everything, you know, in a very automated, smooth way. So we've almost never had problems, you know, with people using it. It's it's pretty intuitive. Nice. How much is Rently, by the way? My partner, Brian, who is, you know, the operations director of our company, could tell you the exact amount. It's like 30 to $40 a lock, I think, okay. per month. Yeah, it's not bad. But the the person, like the prospecting tenant, they wouldn't need to pay that? Or nope. pay yeah, anything? it's free. It's free. You know, we try not to have big barriers to entry because we want a lot of, you know, interest. We want people to come and see it. So we're trying to, you know, really drive people towards it. Then, you know, we want to see who they are and really only encourage people who would be accepted to apply. There's sure. no point you know, and someone with bad credit applying, if you're just going to reject them and they've paid the screening fee and, you know, they're out the money. So, you know, we do like a five minute screening call with our leasing manager. And I think that's worth its weight in gold. Five minutes on the phone, save you an hour in person. You know, it really is not worth doing showings for people who have, you know, a pit bull and that is something your insurance doesn't allow, you know, or things like that. It's just, it's a deal breaker. There's nothing we can do. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, no, that makes sense. Okay, so do you guys get lenient on certain things or you have your, you know, non-negotiable type of things when it comes down to their past history or current situation on their application? You know, if they've been evicted in the past, do you require a higher security deposit or is it just a a no-go? No, a hard, hard no. I would never take someone who's been evicted because I've done that. I've I've been nice to people. I've made exceptions and I've always gotten burned. Every Always. single time. And I've only been, I've only done that two or three times, but sure. you know, that's not a good batting average. So I'm, I'm yeah, done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, two, two or three times too many, right? So anything that you do get a, a little bit lenient on, you know, when it comes down to three times the amount of income possibly per month that they make, is that a rule that you guys go by? It is. Yep. We use that as, as a guideline. You know, I think you have to look at everything on a case by case basis and you've got to be very careful about following fair housing. So the decision you're making is based on the economics of the tenant, you know, for the business of the rental. You know, I don't care, you know, if they are every single protected class in the world, you know, I I have to care if they are going to be able to pay the rent or not, basically. And so what we do is like for people who are asylum seekers or refugees from another country or new immigrants, they don't have a credit score. (laughs) You know, they don't have a printed criminal background check. But, you know, we're going to talk with their social worker to kind of ascertain that from them. You know, it's basic, but it's, it's the best you can do. So we're trying to apply the same standard, you know, and is their source of income going to provide the same level of security that, you know, three times the monthly rent would provide with another tenant and base that, you know, fair decision on that. So I think everyone's a case by case, you know, the things that, you know, you got to watch out for are, yeah, past landlord references, past evictions, you know, never trust the current landlord because they'll want to get rid of a bad tenant. (laughs) Always. That's so good. That's so good. I've mentioned that to certain students of mine. I'm like, yeah, they only put that one landlord, of course. Like, so when it comes down to other references that they give, how do you guys maneuver with that? Because I've had some BS ones that it's like their best friend or, 
you know, somebody that's obviously just going to make them look good. Yeah, all we care about is is employer. We verify their employment yes. and their prior landlords. And frankly, those things are, are not as, you know, critical. Like if, if the prior landlord doesn't call us back or, you know, whatever, like that'll happen sometime. Sometimes you can't check the past landlord references. That company might be out of business or they're not picking up the phone. Um, so you have to go on other things. And, and I think, again, that screening phone call and your gut of talking with this person and just asking them life questions, get to know them a little bit, you know, go through, hey, we do a criminal background check. You know, is there anything that might come up on that? They'll sometimes tell you things that wouldn't necessarily come up, but are quite incriminating. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or, you know, they'll say, oh, yeah, there was just this little domestic abuse thing, but it was all her fault, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, have a nice life, buddy. Yeah. Like, you're yeah. done. You know, so you have to be discerning. But credit can be a little bit deceiving. If you set too high of a bar, you might eliminate a lot of really good tenants who got divorced. It wasn't their fault, you know, and they're going to land on their feet and they're going to be fine again. But temporarily, their credit went down 200 points. Or, you know, someone who got cancer, you know, and couldn't pay their medical bills and has medical debt. You know, to me, medical debt, I don't really hold that against tenants, you know, because that wasn't often your fault. If it's more than you can afford, I mean, it is what it is, you know, yeah. it doesn't mean you're not going to pay your rent necessarily. So you got to look carefully at them and not just say the number's the number. So when it comes down to credit reports, what are certain things that you are not okay with? Me personally, obviously the typical eviction, like if it's a court ordered or also I got this tip a long time ago that if they ever get a car repossessed, most people cherish their cars and if they let their cars go, then what's the difference in paying their rent, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's true. They evicted your car. They're gonna, you're going to get evicted from your house. It's a very yeah. slippery slope. I don't like it when they have a lot of consumer debt at you know, store cards because yeah. to me, that's kind of discretionary. And if they're way behind on that and, and that's damaging their credit score – that's not good. You know, yeah. that's not a good sign. It doesn't it doesn't mean they won't pay their rent, but it's not a good sign. Whereas it, like student debt and medical debt, I don't really care that much about those. Yeah. And those are often big ones and those can hurt people's credit a ton. Divorce can kind of cut both ways. I think that's maybe a bad sign, but maybe not. You know, it just depends on the person and why their credit went down, how long yeah. temporarily. But we've had great tenants who credit was in the 500s because of a divorce, you know, but yeah. their partner had very good credit, you know, or something like that. So divorce and, can be okay. Yeah. And that's where it like, just like you mentioned, like follow your gut, right? Like try to ask those qualifying questions. And just like you mentioned in the beginning as well, like have that five minute conversation. I have spent with somebody that I really feel like is going to be a good fit. And there's a couple of little red flags popping up that I'm questioning about. I'll literally try to hang on the phone with them as long as possible, 20, 30 minutes, just drilling them with a bunch of questions and the same type of questions sometimes just to see how they respond or if they answer the same question towards the end differently and see it, like if I catch them lying or anything, which is right. pretty funny. Yeah, I think when I pick up red flags on a screening call, I kind of come right out there and say, and, and usually I'm not the only owner. So, you know, I'll tell them, look, the owners, you know, they may not accept your application. There's an application fee. 
you know, I would suggest we just hold off on this because I don't think you'd likely be accepted. And I'd rather be right up front about that with them than be like, oh yeah, let's do a showing and get to know each other better and like yeah. waste, waste of time. Each other you know? time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't do it. So it's, it's better to just be up front and say, you know, I'm sorry. It looks like you're probably not going to meet the criteria. I, I just want to be upfront about that. And, um, um, and they get it and they'll move on because guarantee you, uh, you know, on everybody's local Craigslist, there's going to be landlords who don't care <laughs> and yeah. they'll take that same person. You know, it's not like you saying no is the end of the world. Yeah. yeah there's always that beginner, you know, their first property or so that they're just going all willy nilly trying to get anybody in there to fill a vacancy. I pray that all the listeners are definitely taking notes on this stuff and, and writing this stuff down because you don't want to be that person that gets desperate and be one of those examples of uh, having anybody come in without showing it properly, without actually making sure that they are fully qualified. I've been lenient on certain people in the past and it's, it's bit me in the butt before from just the three times the amount of income per month. You know, if they're a, a couple hundred dollars short, I've noticed that it's first off, not even necessarily fair to them because if they're not really great at budgeting their money, then they're over leveraging themselves. They're spending money in all these other locations and they're very tight on the rent then, you know, or late. Yeah. I, I mean, running a property management company, you, you see a lot of sad or hilarious stuff. You kind of have to laugh sometimes of like, you'll put stuff right in the listing and they won't read it. And then they'll apply, ask you these same questions. And it's like, okay, so your monthly income is only like 20% more than like the rent. Yeah. How, how were you planning to do this? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, so, you know, I would say 95% of our inquiries are not going to even lead to showings. You know, you really want to whittle it down. And ideally, you want to narrow it down to a point where you show it once and it's rented. You know, that is really the goal. Do you have like a certain conversation that just like lit you up when it came down to somebody that was 100% disqualified and they were just trying to paint the picture on you? I have one, for example, recently a guy called in and we were talking and he wasn't working, but I said, how do you plan on paying the rent? And he was like, oh, well, you don't need to worry about that. I'll make it happen. And I'm like, all right, well... <laughs> what do you mean you'll make it happen? It, it was the funniest thing. So do you have any crazy stories like that? Or maybe you're in a higher class uh, area? <laughs> well, we try to, you know, have like B plus kind of units that we yeah. market to kind of white collar, you know, young professionals and older sure. folks and things like that. So we're not in C class too much. But yeah, I mean, I, one of the tenants that I accepted earlier had a, you know, a heartbreaking story. And a lot of times the tricky ones will, where she and her partner had a baby and the state had taken the baby away because the place they were living was in such bad shape. It had mold that the landlord wouldn't repair and the landlord, you know, hated them and was trying to evict them. And so technically there's this eviction, but they haven't been processed. And my local manager, you know, up there said, yeah, you know, they seem like a great couple. I talked to their social worker. They seem like they're going to make it. This is all true. And I was like, okay. We took them and they never paid rent ever. And yeah. so like, you know, three months into it, it's like, you, you can't work it out anymore. You're three months late. I got to just cut my losses. And at that point, you know, it's like, just do a cash for keys. Look, I'll give you your deposit back. Just get out whenever you can. And you're not going to get blood out of a stone. It's better to just start fresh. 
So you mentioned do like a, a cash for keys. Yes, that is a magical, important tactic that all landlords should practice because it is way cheaper than going to an eviction court. I don't care what state you're in. Yeah. It's cheaper. It's and it's faster. And like, yeah, it, it kind of rewards dishonest people. And I hate doing that. But you got to just think in the long run, the big picture of like, if you got a bad tenant who's not paying the rent, just pay them to get the heck out of there and start fresh. Because if they're not paying you, you're losing that rent every month. You know, you're losing their thousand dollars of rent every month, no matter what. It's better yeah. to just, you know, give them their deposit back or give them an extra 500 bucks to get out of there. Let you re-rent it to someone who will pay. Yep. And then you don't have to pay the attorney, you know, one or $2,000 and waste a month or two trying to get them out of there. Yeah, that's good. You know, to go back onto the sob story that you just had from a, you know, a particular tenant, no matter what your gut's telling you, like, even if this is like a little bit of a red flag, but everything kind of pans out, they just went through some troubled times. I'm all about helping out people. I truly am. But what I've noticed is even if they seem like they just went through hell on all their past experiences and things were unfair, whatever it may be, and they could be right on the hill of, you know, getting onto a better path, a better future. You still don't want to be the guinea pig of trying that out because at the end of the day, they're going through hell right now. They've been going through hell for a little bit and you're just in the mix of, you're potentially putting yourself in the mix of those new problems. And hopefully it turns out better for them moving forward. But I just don't like to be that guinea pig of potentially seeing how their hell years are going to turn into hopefully not mine and stop, you know? I think that's the exact right way to look at it. If I have an existing tenant who I know and trust and is always paid, who has yeah. a hardship, I will be there for them. You know, yeah. I, I will work with them. I will make a plan. We can defer this. We can do that. That's no problem. It, but like you said, being their sort of savior and you don't yeah. know them from Adam that can backfire. That's going to have a pretty high failure rate. And that's why I like actually working, you know, with immigrants and, and refugees because you know, their story is true <laughs> and, and you're working right with the authorities, you know, who are helping them and immigrants and refugees, you can rule out, you know, a lot of things like drug addiction, you know, a lot of the criminal issues that you might have, you know, the divorce, the, all of the different kind of background issues that can really mess up tenants who may have been in this country a lot longer, you know, working with people who are hungry for a fresh start and they really have a very valid reason why, then it makes sense. Yeah. Then it's like, okay, that story to me checks out. Um, whereas other people, it's like, oh, I don't, I have no way to really verify if you are who you are and what you say is true. And you want to help people. It's, it's really hard in this business when people email you with this list of all the tragedies in their life and your apartment is going to save them. You want to help them. You really do. But you have to remember that there are other landlords out there who will get that same email and let them, like you said, be the guinea pigs. Let them test out that person. Then when they get back on their feet, they build their credit a year later and they're ready to, to handle a unit like yours. Sure. Absolutely. You know, yeah. apply again. So let's talk about security deposits for a second. What does that look like for you guys? If there is any red flags on there that you're just like, you're on the edge of actually denying them, would you ever request a higher security deposit just to bring a better insurance kind of plan behind it? Yes, we do. You know, our typical deposit is one month's rent. If there's some mitigating factors, we would request two months rent from residential tenants. From commercial tenants, I mean, I'll request six months rent, 12 months rent, yeah. you know, because if you rent to a 
big restaurant you know, and they go bankrupt and stop paying rent. I mean, you could be vacant for six to 12 months. It's not sure. easy to re-rent those kind of spaces. So yeah. I think for different kinds of tenants, you need a bigger deposit or you get personal guarantees from the owners of that business so that, hey, you're personally liable here. I mean, if I take this to a judge, they're going to give me your car. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's going to be a quick stamp. Yeah. <laughs> right. And have you ever, you know, pushed it to three months on certain situations for security deposits for residential? I have not. My guess or my gut kind of tells me, like, if you're that unsure about them, just just lower your rent and get new applicants and start again. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Okay. And then when it comes down to increasing rents, like if, if somebody's staying for the long run, basically just watching the market in your currently area and seeing, you know, what you can raise it to, or is there a natural increase over time? Yeah, that's a great question. We build into our leases an automatic 3% rent adjustment if neither side give, gives notice 45 days before the end of the lease. Good. So that allows us to kind of keep up with inflation usually. Yeah and not get far behind. I hate letting tenants get way behind or below market on their rent and then saying, oh gosh, we got to up your rent 30% on you. I mean, that's just a terrible situation to put on someone. So we always try to keep up each year. Some years I might keep it flat if they kind of started at a pretty good rate. I might keep it flat for a year or even two if they're a great tenant and then start, you know, the 3%. But when we re-rent, you know, an apartment, yeah, we'll bring it right up to market. Or, you know, if there's a tenant that we really don't like that's causing a lot of problems, like you shouldn't be giving them a discount. You know, you can bring that right up to the market rate and then some if that's the way you want to send the message or they should leave. But typically, if people have been an issue, I mean, you know, we'll just explain, look, we're not going to be able to renew the lease. We're going to remodel this apartment. You know, we like to give people, you know, 90 days of notice, you know, plenty of time. And, you know, because the last thing you want is for them to be mad at you, trash your unit, you know, and so forth. But sometimes it's just not the right fit. And they've been causing major problems. And I had one tenant pull another's hair out. You know, if, if, they're, they're, if they're like that, you don't, you don't want to keep testing how it's going to go. But yeah. unfortunately, a lot of landlords get very intimidated and they don't know how to t- say no to problem tenants. And they just let them stay forever. And it becomes a really rough situation for the landlord and and for everyone else in the building. And I don't think that's fair to the other tenants. You know, it's sad to see the landlord doing that. And at the end of the day, it it is better to just be upfront, open and clear communication, give people enough time to plan their lives, but to rip off the bandaid and say, this isn't working. We're not renewing this lease. Yeah, that's good. I've actually taken over properties and I don't recommend this, but it depends. Like when you're in syndications and bigger apartment buildings, you're going to get like you want <laughs> there to be some kind of, you know, occupancy, right? You don't want a full empty building. That's that's a no go. But I've picked up small residential properties with a tenant or two in them. And I've typically not had the best results. It's like a 50-50. So I always recommend to stay away from those. But in one particular situation, as I was buying the property, I found out that the one tenant wasn't paying the current owner. And it was supposed to get like the money was supposed to get transferred over to me on the docs. And I was like, hey, there's money missing. And it was because the tenant was making up some you know, BS excuse and surprise, surprise, those excuses throughout the time frame that, you know, they lived with at our property, it continued. So yeah, I, I've inherited a lot of tenants from owners yeah. and a good owner, you'll inherit good tenants, you know, sure. and, and a so-so 
owner who gave it away to third-party property management who didn't care, you're going to get a real mix. And there are sometimes ones you know right away, like with the building we just bought right away, and this is a commercial building, but same idea applies. The whole second floor you know, of offices that were therapists and consultants and stuff smelled like weed, a strong smell. And it was inappropriate. There's therapists counseling people with addiction on that floor. Like, we can't have that. You know, a recreational marijuana is legal in Maine. You know, I support that legalization 100% all over the nation, but not for smoking in a public space in a building. So, you know, I put number one on my to-do list, kick out potheads. And I just, you know, called them up. I said, sorry, you know, we're not going to be able to continue with you. You know, we'll need you out by the end of the month. And they totally understood they smoked for the rest of the month and then they're gone and they leave. And now we have to repaint the walls. But, you know, you got to be quick to prune the branches if you have people doing things that are illegal. You know, the only thing they had, they were dealing drugs. And the only thing they had in there was a a sheet pasted to the wall of a conversion from ounces to grams. Yeah, probably you leave. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's no good. What do you do in certain situations when it comes down to pets? Or even, uh, what is it called? Um, Support uh, animals? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Thorny issue, because it is legal to not allow pets. It is not legal to prohibit someone their medical, you know, support animal. So you got to be careful. And if you have someone with a support pit bull, and you've got a family with kids in the unit, you maybe need to reject them based on something other than the support pit bull. You know, maybe their credit or income or whatever isn't right. You know, so you got to be very discerning. We allow pets in almost all of the units that I co-own because if you don't, you're limiting yourself to like half of the renter pool. And I think a lot of great people have pets. And if you say no pets is my policy, you're eliminating a lot of great renters who will be wonderful people, pay the rent, quiet little kitty cat, you know, not going to be a problem. You can charge pet fees. You can charge pet deposits. You can charge pet rent. You can make them have pet insurance. I mean, you can go hog wild. So I, I think, you know, in this day and age, you know, the connection between humans and animals has never been stronger. I really support it. What I don't allow and what I don't tolerate are what are called dangerous breeds. You know, no pit bulls, none of these dogs that can kill a child. It's just, it's not worth it. And often if you read your insurance policy, they are not allowed. You wouldn't think a husky is a dangerous breed, but technically they are in a lot of insurers. If a husky mauls one of your tenants and they sue you for a million dollars, you might be personally liable for being negligent of violating your own insurance policy and they might not pay a dime. So you got to be careful and ask your insurance agent, you know, what's the deal with dangerous breeds? Can I have tarantulas and pythons and pit bulls or is that not kosher? And, And they'll tell you that that's not a good idea. Is there any type of insurances out there that do cover that, that you found, or you, that isn't something that you're currently looking for? I would never look for it per se. You yeah, know, and yeah. I think there'll be enough landlords that, that won't care and won't know, and that'll just accept a tenant with a dangerous breed that they'll find a place. And that's great. And, and they may be great people. It may be a great dog. I don't think all pit bulls are evil or anything, but it's just like, why would you build a balcony on a unit that doesn't need a balcony, you know, why would you create a liability where you could get sued or you could have problems that you don't need to? So I would say follow the rules on the insurance. Don't allow, you know, dangerous breeds and you're not going to eliminate that many renters from that. Awesome. I love it. I think that's great. I mean, is there anything that you would leave the listeners with when it comes down to, you know, being their own landlord and really just making sure that they're screening out properly and doing the property management to a certain standard? 
Final words of wisdom, I guess, would be uh, clear and open communication with your tenants. It's probably better to over communicate than under. You know, email them if there's going to be a contractor on site, you know, let people know and find the tenants who are like the Girl Scouts and the Boy Scouts who are always telling you, you know, hey, I just noticed this or hey, there's that. Instead of paying someone to mow your lawns, like buy them a lawnmower and give them a break in the rent, you know, find those people that really take pride and ownership in your properties and like promote them, (laughs) you know, work with them because they will be your best friends. They will tell you when something's going on and they'll stay there forever, you know, and just treat them right. Don't jack the rent up, you know, out of reason and you'll never have a vacancy. They'll be a great resource for you. So good. I love it. Awesome. Well, Dave, how can people get a hold of you? Absolutely. So my website is holmanhomes.com, H-O-L-M-A-N-H-O-M-E-S.com. And our management company is Katahdin Property Management. So that's named after a mountain in Maine that's the northern end of the Appalachian Trail. So most of you can't spell it, but you should go there someday. It's beautiful. It's K-A-T-A-H-D-I-N, Property Management. And yeah, I'd love to chat with anyone. If you have any questions, need some help, uh, happy to chat. Love that. That's awesome. Well, you guys heard it first here. Hopefully this was a a ton of awesome takeaways for you. I know it was for me. And if you haven't actually taken a ton of notes, then you're definitely going to want to rewind this one, jot down the notes and write down any questions you have. Reach out to Dave. He's an awesome guy. Connect with him. See how you guys can add value to each other. And yeah, if you want to get a hold of me, you can always do so on Instagram. It's Brandon Elliott Investments on Facebook.com slash Brandon Elliott Investor. And then if you guys have any questions regarding credit, need help with, you know, education wise on credit, then that would be creditcounselelite.com. And then we also have our credit repair company for you. Or if you guys have any prospecting tenants that need help, then always reach out to us at creditrepairmobile.com. But we will see you on the very next one, guys. Appreciate you all so much. Hit that subscribe button for Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast and leave a review. Let me know what you guys think about it. Till next time, guys. Stay blessed. This has been another episode of Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast brought to you by Brandon Elliott. For more information, please visit brandonelliotinvestments.com. Also, please don't forget to like, share, and leave a comment below. Thanks again for joining. Until next time, God bless.